0: fear is a cross-dresser. Fear is this really interesting emotion that likes to cross-dress other things. It's much easier to be angry than afraid. It's easier to be hateful than afraid. And so people will say the easier emotions instead of the underlying emotion. So a lot of the time, fear is rearing its ugly head as something else.
1: Today's guest, Vanessa Van Edwards, really struggled to fit in as a kid. Maybe that's not all that unusual. I know. I was not the uh, most uh, comfortable person in social scenarios either. And honestly, still, I'm not. The thing about her is that as she grew up, the problem actually probably got worse and worse until a moment where she was challenged by a professor to turn her fierce, fierce devotion to knowledge and to academics loose on her ability to actually study and code human social interaction. That has become her profession. And in fact, she's got a new book called Captivate, which um, which basically reveals the code of human interaction, which I found absolutely fascinating because I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with how people interact with each other. And as somebody who was always the one who, who admittedly hung out in the kitchen during parties and often still does, The ability to come out of the kitchen, the ability to understand how to move into a room and feel okay, how to understand the most nuanced parts of social interaction, the idea that that is actually trainable is profound on so many levels, not just personal, but when you apply it to the world on just such a wide range of possibilities. So I wanted to have this conversation with her so I could both understand her journey, what took her here. And... Start to deconstruct some of these things and share some of these ideas with you. Really excited to share this conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. There is an interesting conversation swirling around it. So tell me about power posing.
3: So power posing was kind of
0: coined by Amy Cuddy. She's a Harvard Business School researcher. And she devised this study, this theory, that if you stand broad – Mm. And you stand like very, um, with your hands on your hips, your feet spread wide, you begin, to, that changes your mindset. You begin to produce testosterone, exactly. Um, and if you stand like very closed, you actually feel more nervous, produces cortisol. So she had this study where she had participants do it. And supposedly, high power posers produce testosterone, lower cortisol, low power posers, less testosterone, more cortisol. However, they have not been able to replicate the study. Mm. So after her really famous TED Talk and her book, which is a great book, no one can repeat this study. Now, here's what I think about it. It's very, very hard to replicate studies. So I I really would like them to keep trying. However, there are other studies that indicate that power posing or this idea, there's something valid to it. For example, researchers at the University of British Columbia looked at winning and losing athletes across Races in the Olympics. Mm. And they found that across cultures, winning athletes do the same thing. They raise their hands above their head. They tilt their face towards the sky and they exclaim. Whereas losing athletes typically crumple into like a standing fetal position. Mm. They even saw this with congenitally blind athletes. Athletes who've been blind since birth.
1: So So they're not modeling that behavior from someone else because they can't say it.
0: Exactly. Somehow their body told them to do this. So whether or not the testosterone and cortisol is true, I'm saying to myself, well, if we are coded that if you win something, you expand your body, that's a, a sensation that I want to feel, right? So I think that there is something to it. We have stopped teaching Amy Cuddy's research, but we do still talk about the idea of broad versus shrunken in body language.
1: Yeah and and that makes a lot of sense and I feel that too. I think most of us intuitively just feel that. What what raised my eyebrow was when recently I saw one of her co-investigators come out and say yes. actually we had Dana. yeah I had major questions about the way we were interpreting the data and I still do and I'm I'm questioning our own research right now and I was which happens in the world of science constantly, yeah. you know, it is, it's really hard. It's not just about running the experiments. It's like, okay, how do we code the data? That's everything.
0: Yeah. And um,
1: that's when we pulled the, the research. Yeah.
0: But I, you know, I mean, you, you look at yoga, right? We're doing this chart right now of all the yoga poses and we're putting them on a body language spectrum mm. where
1: we're looking oh, that's at. so interesting. Yeah. Because I was. As a former yoga teacher, especially. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and so, like, I, you know, I was in yoga one day and I was like, you know, sometimes the small positions feel really good to me but sometimes they feel restricting. And I thought to myself, I wonder if there's something to that, that like low power is not bad, right? There's some times where you wanna feel Mm. safe and protected and comfortable. And being proud is good, but you're also vulnerable. right? And so I was, we're we're doing this chart of all the body language poses and where they, all the yoga poses and where they might fall on an emotional
1: spectrum. Ah, that is so fascinating. Because as a teacher, You would find out really quickly as a teacher that certain postures or certain sequences would generate very powerful emotional responses. So I could tell on any given day, you know, if when we moved into hip opening postures or pigeon pose that, you know, in a class of 50 students on any given day, you know, like two to five of them would start to tear and would get they would start to cry. Mm -hmm. And because there was something that it was doing that was much deeper, whether it was releasing, whether it was deepening into a very vulnerable place. And the flip side, you know, the classic backbending poses, camel pose for those, Mm -hmm. um, where you're literally you know you're standing on your knees for those who don't know this pose imagine you're you're on a mat you know like you're sort of you're you're on your knees but you're sitting up on your knees with your hips elevated and then you just kind of like lift your heart open lean your head back if you're comfortable doing that you put your hands on your butt or on your ankles you are utterly exposed like you are a hundred, you're basically in a, a position of complete and utter surrender and vulnerability And that was another posture where people would regularly freak out and kind of, they would need to come back down because they would get anxious. Mm
0: -hmm. So that is exactly what I was tapping into. And what's interesting is there's actually research on this. So I went, you know, I'm a total academic (laughs) junkie. I love all the research studies. There was a study that was done called the Body Body Map of Emotions. What they did is they had people watch videos or sense certain emotions and then figured out where they had the most activity in their body. Mm. So it's this beautiful chart, and we can probably link to it. Um, they showed that for example sadness has less activity in the body in other words the body goes blue so when you're feeling sad you your entire body the blood flow everything lowers so your hands become colder your feet become colder you have less activity whereas anger you have all this heightened activity in the heart and chest area Hmm. and so when you look at this chart it actually helps you tap into what you're feeling from a physical perspective which I think is really interesting because I think one of the biggest challenges we have is feeling our feelings.
1: Yeah, we're utterly, we're disembodied.
0: Uh, completely. Yeah. And so I can talk to people who are disembodied or numb and say, okay, okay, I understand that in your head, you don't feel. Where do you feel activity in your body? Okay, my hands feel hot. Interesting. My feet feel cold. We can actually look at the body map of emotions and figure out what emotion that most closely
1: resembles according to the research. Hmm, That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Have you done this with people where you sort of like ask them about body parts? Yes. Is how hard or easy is it for people? Like, are, do they automatically be like, oh, I can immediately feel what's going on in my body? Or is it a, a, a process where you have to almost like walk them through reconnecting with what they're actually feeling in their body physically before you can even reverse engineer what they're, what that means emotionally?
0: The second one, and specifically, I find that um, one of the things I teach is that fear is a cross-dresser. Fear is this really... Interesting emotion that likes to cross dress as other things. It's much easier to be angry than afraid. It's easier to be hateful than afraid. And so people will say the easier emotions instead of the underlying emotion. Mm. So a lot of the time, fear is rearing its ugly head as something else. So someone will, a lot of, you know, what I talk about is interpersonal. I don't do a lot of intrapersonal. So I'll say, okay, you go to this networking event or you go on this date and you feel like you're not yourself. Right. You're really anxious. Um, you're just making bad jokes. You're talking all the time. What's happening there? Um, well, I, I feel like uh, people just don't get me. Like, this isn't my crowd. Okay. All right. I hear that. But underneath that, so it's, it's not your crowd. What would happen if it's not your crowd? And we get down to the bottom, and it. it's that they're terrified of being rejected. Right. Right. And we know, we, this sounds obvious to us, but people are like, oh,
3: rejection.
0: I'm afraid of that. And it's and it's, so it often manifests as something different. So it's no. a layering process.
1: I think it's it's been my experience. I'm curious. It sounds like yours as well, that when you keep asking, like, I call it the five la- layer why. Yeah. You keep asking, like, why do you, you, know, like, what's underneath, what's underneath, what's underneath? It always comes down to, like, three basic things, no matter what, you yes. know, the thousand service things are. It's like fear of rejection or, or being judged, you know, like fear of loss. Mm-hmm. And it's also just anxiety related to uncertainty
0: the purpose question
1: yeah and it's also fear of, of um <laughs> fear of death like mortality
0: and it, and being alone yeah. i would say that that third bucket is like being alone mortality and some people are afraid more of the other and i think that you know for people listening for myself if i am feeling what i call a messy emotion you know or a emotion that makes me like ooh, it's not convenient yeah. right um I will, or an uncomfortable emotion, I will often try to think about what bucket is this? Huh. Like, what, what is What's the What's under, really underneath yeah, that. What is, yeah. is this about being alone? Is this about belonging? Is this about rejection? And even just that process helps me not judge my emotions. Hmm. So I used to have this problem where I would say, that is bad, right? Vanessa, that's a bad emotion. It's not a productive emotion. Like, I'd get an email from someone and it would make me angry. And I'd say, well, anger is not a productive emotion. Right? It's not going to get me anywhere. I'm a business person.
1: You guys can't see, but when, when Vanessa just did that, by the way, she put her hands on her hips like she was scolding herself. <laughs> it's yeah, like, I do. listen.
0: Yeah, I, do. I would do that, and I would talk to myself like that. <laughs> um, actually, just side note here is um, if you ever want to know how someone talks to themselves, see yeah, how they talk to their dog. Uh, interesting. Um, so, yeah, so I would, like, scold myself, and I realized that actually the act of judging my feelings, that meta process there, um, was not serving me at all. Um, and actually just being like, wow, okay, that's that's a hard emotion, that's a difficult emotion, but not a bad emotion.
1: Yeah. I, and we get so mired in judging our judgments and judging yeah. our feelings. So rather than just saying, Huh. Um, I love Ben Ben Zander's famous, he's like, How fascinating. Yeah. You yeah, know, let's just let's just sit with that. Mm-hmm. You know, what's what are we gonna do with that? Rather than, you know, okay, it is what it is. I'm feeling what I'm feeling, huh. You're so curious.
0: Is, yes, the problem is, yeah. is for my struggling A types who are listening. Like I'm, you know, I'm I'm a recovering controlaholic a little mm-hmm. bit, um, <laughs> among among an awkward person. And what's funny about that is it's hard to just sit right. Like it's I have really a, hard, it's brutally yeah. hard. I have a really hard time meditating. I'm a really bad meditator, which I'm not supposed to say. You know, um, so if I can say okay least categorize it. At least gives me something to do. Mm. So if you're an A-type who has really a hard time sitting with uncomfortable emotions like me, um, just figuring out the bucket, um, trying to name it, trying to, it's called capitalizing or multimodality, where you think about, okay, in my, in my stomach it feels like nausea. Um, in my head it feels like f- uh, f- being frantic. Um, in my email I sound short. You're thinking about this emotion every mo- in every mode. Mm. Um, that is a pr- more productive thing to do but you're just
1: exploring it. Is there a risk though of of going overboard with that where like you you actually there's a certain satisfaction with naming it to the to the level where you feel like you actually start to more Sometimes. aggressively look to do it rather than just sit with it? Like could that actually be an excuse not to do the work to be with?
0: I wonder. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, I think maybe because yeah. it
1: takes away some of the the just the, the unease yeah. of the emotion. Yeah, which which is not necessarily a bad thing, but if it if it becomes a deliberate practice that never lets you actually fully sit with it, um, I wonder what the the net effect of that practice is. Like
0: wallowing, it's,
1: right? It's like short short term makes you feel better, but yeah. then you know it's sort of like uh, you know like the pharmacological solution versus mm. the okay, let's do this in combination with cbt
0: yes i I guess it would um what i was thinking is if you make it like a checklist like oh i did it done now Hmm. washing hands right then no but if you're like okay like this is the start of my journal okay right like this is the warm-up exercise to dreamstorming about it or journaling about it i feel like that could lead you to explore more when you're locked Hmm. as opposed to like a crutch
1: yeah i'll buy that Well, I know because one, one of the original instructions I got when I was learning mindfulness practice actually came from a teacher who I've never met, but, you know, Pema Chodron, who would say that if you're trying to sit in a, in a mindfulness practice and just allow your attention to go to your breath, and as, as feelings or thoughts come up, literally just label it. Hmm. So she literally says, you know, like, you notice a thought, you are know, like, just say to yourself, thinking, and yeah. then like, let it go. And because, like, the act of naming it just kind of says, okay, you know, and don't chastise yourself for, right. for actually the process of thinking it's human. We all, we're constantly yeah. spinning our heads. But notice that there's a certain satisfaction that comes from noticing that you noticed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when you name it, you, you get that hit. It's like you get, this, you, know, you, get, you get the score, like you get a win. You get,
0: it's, <laughs> yeah, I, think, I actually do think you get a little dopamine from it. Yeah. So um, when you look at the brain and making decisions, the progress principle, Trace Amabio, um, she has found that any kind of progress, including a decision, feels good to us. Yep. And so labeling is actually progress. It's actually making a decision. So I think that there is a little tiny bit of pleasure hit there. But I don't know if that's such a bad thing, if it's going to carry you through. Right, if it's going to say, okay, this makes this unbearable yeah. emotion bearable, agreed. So then, like, I can kind of explore it a little bit.
1: Yep, agreed. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting though the uh, the hit that comes from um, making or, or like noticing it versus taking action on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, tell me if you've if you've because I'm not uh, nowhere near as well researched on the research as you. I remember stumbling upon research that also showed that it can be negative because. The hit that you get from simply acknowledging it um, can sometimes be satisfying enough so that it stops you from ever taking action on it to actually resolve it.
0: Yes. So what you were talking about is the research on affirmations. Okay. So I think there is a difference between labeling and affirming.
1: Ah,
3: okay. Right? There's a slight difference
0: there. Okay. So if at the end of the night you're saying, okay, I'm going to visualize myself as a successful author or entrepreneur and I'm going to envision what it feels like and I'm going to say, I am a successful author. I'm a successful entrepreneur. That actually research has found that it makes in your brain makes your brain feel like it's already achieved it, mm, right. and so you have less motivation to do it. Where I think labeling it's less goal oriented, it's more decision oriented. So it's progress, but it's not the end. So if you label emotion as okay, like um, anger or fear of rejection, right? It's not the end. You're not saying I'm going to be popular. <laughs> Right. That would be affirmation. Um, So in a way, it sort of gives you a little bit of a lens into why, as opposed to how,
1: I guess. Okay. I'll buy that. So affirmations then. Yeah. Not a fan. Not a fan. Hmm. Not a fan. Is there any positive aspect to them in your mind?
0: Um, I think that they can be clarifying. So I think that, um, you know, one of the big questions that we face, we were talking about this earlier, is, you know, why am I here? Uh, What's my purpose? And where do I fit? I think for me, I spent 10 years of my career, school and career, just trying to figure out who am I in a professional sense. So when you talk about affirmations, it can be clarifying to think on my best day in my ultimate dreams in five years, if I could be here, then you can work backwards from there. So in that sense, if you're kind of dreamstorming about it, I think it can help feel like, oh, I see the end. Now to get there, I would have to do this step if you do the work. Mm. So I think that you can do affirmations, you can think about what those end goals are, you can do visualizations, if you make sure that you're also visualizing what you're doing tomorrow.
1: Yeah, the process.
0: Not just five years, also five minutes.
1: I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who's um, been in the positive psychology world for years, and she was saying, this was I actually was researching this from my last book, that, because I was curious about these two different types of visualization, which I learned are called outcome simulation and process simulation, where one is and, – and the research was fascinating to me because one was telling that if you visualize yourself getting an A on the test, like kicking ass, doing phenomenally mm-hmm. on it, versus if you visualize yourself studying, you know, like every – like literally just picture yourself. I'm sitting there. I'm, with, with studying, a book, well. I'm studying. Right. Yeah. That the – The likelihood of actually eventually doing really well on whatever it is on the final thing was much higher with that process simulation than it is with, you know, the the outcome Mm -hmm. simulation in your mind. And what it was showing was that because there's so much mythology around visualization that, you know, it's not just about seeing the end goal clearly. The people who actually get to the end goal much more effectively are the ones who actually visualize what it'll take to get there on a regular basis. Like, what's the work, like you were saying. Um, And that surprised me, actually, because it's pretty contrary to a lot of the things that you hear sort of out there.
0: I kind of like that, though. And I I also think, I mean, this is not scientifically based, but I have this opinion that there are three different kinds of people when it comes to work there are dreamers shippers and builders and so there's people who like love to dream they're very creative they have trouble with that process part they have then you have people who are builders they love tinkering they're the inventors they build and build and build and never ship and then you have people who kind of impatient and they just want to get it out there and so they do something the minimal sort of viable product and they Mm -hmm. ship it out as soon as possible and i always try to figure out when i'm working with people where they fall um, because we all have a comfort zone, I think.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, can you learn the, the other two skills, if you're primarily one?
0: I think so. Like For example, I'm a shipper. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very impatient. <laughs> <laughs> I um, dream real quick, and then before I've even finished thinking about it, I'm like, right, ship it. Um, and that's served me really well in my business, um, surprisingly. However, now where I'm at is I have to take a little bit more time with what I'm doing, a little bit less MVP. Um, and so I've had to learn the skills mm-hmm. of um, the builders.
1: Does when you learn those skills, do they eventually do you eventually become competent enough on that side of it where it lights you up as much as that sort of more organic orientation? Do you think I haven't found happens? it yet.
0: Yeah. I haven't found it yet. However, I think mean, there's a great satisfaction when I, I have hired builders because I know that I'm not one, right. right? So when I hire a builder, I get great satisfaction of them seeing them love their job. Right? Like I have a small team, I love my team, like they're my other family. And to see them get so excited about that process gives me great satisfaction, more than me necessarily doing it myself. Mm. And I'm like, all right, I know I gotta build today, like we have six months of building this course. I don't love it, but like it's working and I can see that my team is loving it mm. more than shipping.
1: So if you want to build a team, then it's also really good to sort of that's a really interesting framework to know, okay we need all three orientations on this team. Yes. When you're bringing people in, try and suss out. What are sort of like easy questions to ask to sort of quickly figure out, okay, which one of the three are you?
0: Yeah, so um, like for example, if you give a project that you typically do, so let's say uh, uh, you have a blog and so you ask someone, okay, we're gonna develop a content calendar and uh, we're gonna do a whole series of blog posts on introverts and extroverts and ambiverts. Um, If you were doing that, what would be the part of the process you would most look forward to? Or in a past project that they bring up, what was your favorite part of that process? Was it the brainstorming session? Mm. Was it like the nitty-gritty doing all your research and gathering everything? Or was it that moment that you hit publish? So that's a really easy one. And people – it's not too personal, right? That's a question that people can usually very quickly answer. Um, You also could give them a, a set of sample tasks and ask them which one they would volunteer for. Mm-hmm. Uh, dreamer tasks builder tasks and shipper tasks right. like dreamers will always gravitate towards whiteboard sticky notes yeah. <laughs> you know, they love that kind of strategy stage builders love love the research stage the coding building spreadsheets um, the process yes and then the shippers are like oh the, the social media gathering testimonials um, talking to our customers right like mm. and that's a real easy way to tell
1: yeah, that's so interesting. I love that framework, actually. Um, I'm just thinking about our team, and we definitely have sort of a, a blend. And when you don't, then stuff doesn't... Yeah, because you need all three orientations to actually go from idea to out the door.
0: Like, here's it, and I can usually look at a, a business and see where the most of the orientations are. For example, if you have a business that's all dreamers, nothing's shipped. They have no products and no monetization. Beautiful branding, beautiful about page. If you have a business that's all builders, typically you have... Uh, an amazing product suite, an amazing user experience, but necess- not, not, not a lot of vision, right? Not a lot of long-term vision. Mm. They send really spammy emails. It's like functional. <laughs> it's really functional. They have those marketing pages that fit that formula with the big red text. Yeah. And if you have a lot of shippers, you have dozens of products. <laughs> and that's how you know where an orientation is.
1: Got it. Um, <laughs> no, I completely agree with that. <laughs> um, I have a sense of this, but I'm really curious what your sense is. What do you think think do you think that um most entrepreneurs lean towards one of those three orientations
0: yes i do and? um i think that
1: typically they lean towards dreamers yeah so great yeah so great which, like idea yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> i know because i'm like raising my hand over here like <laughs> my team would be like wait you have another idea <laughs> like, please just stop
0: yeah. so i have this really Terrible, wonderful part of my to-do list, which I'm not allowed to dream all the time because I I am a shipper, but I do a lot of strategy. So I have these hours or two or three or four hours where I let myself go through my idea document. And my idea document, I'm not allowed to look at it except for this one Friday every month. And my team always like braces themselves when I do it (laughs) because I will literally send out like 50 emails to do what? To research, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so I'll be like, can you research this idea? Because like a lot of them are builders, right? So like I'll dream for a while and then like send it all to them and they bring back all this stuff. And then I'm like, wait, let's publish it. And they're like, n- n- no, wait, just, just wait, just wait a second, right? Because <laughs> I get really impatient. I want it out.
1: Yeah. I have a friend who actually has um, a Slack channel for his team ah. where it's entirely for his team to slap his hand <laughs> and say, no, 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 focus. <laughs> Just this, oh like my just God. this. That sounds like torture, uh, but effective. I, I guess for a certain Slack. personality. Oh um, for those who aren't on Slack, by the way, it's a really awesome messaging app that actually our team uses and loves. But um, go Slack. So we could geek out, and I actually want to geek yeah. out more on behavior and social dynamics. I don't know if you use that phrasing at all, but I also want to. I want to talk about you and how you got to this place. And your body language just told a whole big story <laughs> right there. Like it's like, let me take a step back here. I don't like it. Because uh, right now you're out there and you're sort of known as like the master of understanding human behavior. Yeah. It's sort of like you're a profiler for the rest of us. Yeah. And this was not you as a little kid.
0: Wow. No. No. I don't talk about my background almost at all. In fact, I get a lot of emails asking about my background or school. Um, I think it's because it's not necessarily the easiest thing to talk about. It's also complicated. Basically, I grew up in L.A. and um, my parents divorced, very messy divorce, when I was young. And I split my time every three and a half days. Uh, Switching houses. One house, I was the only child in a Jewish household. Um, The other three and a half days, I was one of four and sometimes seven because we had lots of cousins living with us of a Christian household. Mm. And it was a a little bit of a schizophrenic upbringing, lots of love all the way around, but just like I I think I was a different person because I had to be different to survive in both places. Mm. Um, So in one, I was sort of an adult and I was treated like an adult. I was brought to fancy restaurants. You know, there was no patience for little little thing, little kid things. In the other house, I was one of a gaggle of kids. And you had to sort of fight for the food. And, you know, like yes, we got everything. But it was a much more communal existence. And it was happening every three and a half days. So what happened was I became very adaptable to whoever was around me and then did not figure out who I was. So it's taken me a, a long time, most of my 20s, to try to even figure out, like,
1: who am I? Yeah, I mean, that's it's got to be... Oh, uh, it's just a brutally challenge. On the one hand, really challenging experience, and the other hand, it's it's one of those things where you kind of look at it and you just—it's almost like on on any given day, it's the best of both worlds or it's mm-hmm. the worst of both mm-hmm.
0: worlds. Yes, it shaped me and it allowed me to read people in in a way like I was always an observer. I wasn't great at interacting, but I was always really good at observing because I would walk into a house that I hadn't been in in three and a half days with a little bag, and be like, "Okay, what's the mood?" Right, like looking at my parents, looking at my. Siblings, looking at people in the house, aunts and uncles who were there, and being like, okay, what happened while I was gone? What do I have to adapt to really quickly? Um, And so it taught me that skill, but it also made it so that I have a really hard time, like, stabilizing. Like, going to college was wonderful because it was the first time I had ever been in the same place for more than two weeks. Mm. That was like the the greatest luxury in the world to me. I still get anxiety sometimes on Sunday nights because when I was in middle school, I started switching houses Monday mornings. And I would like have to like bring my bags, and, like put them in the back of the car so that like I have to like store them to make sure that I went to the other house because I was picked up by the other house. And I still get anxiety on Sunday nights and I have to remind myself I don't have to switch houses tomorrow. Mm. And so that's still with me and I haven't switched houses in... 12 years
1: yeah and, and it, it also it's you know the whole time it's like well who's the real Vanessa yeah you know, like is there a real Vanessa or are these just are, the, are there just these two facades that are desperately trying to fit in in the two different universes in which I have to exist
0: yeah, it's really scary when you don't even know yourself yeah and I think that like, people who are closest to me see my different sides, and I think that they kind of in their mind have an idea of who I am, but sometimes I lose sight of it. Like, so right now I'm going through a little bit of an authenticity crisis um, while writing because I realize we've gotten to this place where I write a piece of goodness, right? Like an article, a video script, book, ebook, whatever. And I really, really want people to read it and experience it. Mm.
1: in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com goodlife. That's netsuite.com goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com goodlife.
0: So I can either write a clickbaity headline that leaves me feeling dirty or I can write what it's really about and hope that that's enough to get people to click. And I find that I'm facing the struggle a lot with also, like, do I say what I want, even though people might not like it or relate to it because it's me? Or do I try to write something that's going to be very appealing and everyone will get it and I cover all my bases? It's been really hard to try to figure out how do I manage both, which I think is something I've been struggling with my whole life.
1: Yeah. I mean, with you, it's a, it's it's that. It's like, okay, how do how much of myself do I let out versus how much do I do, which I know is sort of designed to be good for, quote, business. Yes. But underneath that, the the layer deeper is still. And do you have at this point in your life, do you have a strong sense of who you are and what matters to you?
0: Sometimes. Like, I wish it was better. I don't think I do yet. I think I have a lot of learning left, which I think is why I do what I do. Hmm. I mean, I, I think, like, really, if I would get down to it, the reason I study people is, like, I'm trying to discover myself through people. Like I'll, I'll, why do I do these qualitative interviews with people, right? Like, why do I interrogate people, right? Like I'll sit and look at their tells and their body language and look at their personality dynamics and their PQ and their IQ. And I think that if I can see like, oh, that reminds me of me, it's easier than me, like looking at me and saying, is that me?
3: Mm.
0: Is that something I learned? Is that my mom? Yeah. So I think that, I think that's why I do what I do.
1: Yeah. It's sort of like you're using them as, as partial mirrors. Yes. to try and find your reflection. in them.
0: Yeah, and, and that's why I love what I do is because my students, on the best day, my readers will send me things that help me learn about me and help me learn about them. And then I feel like I learn more about humanity. You know, like I don't have children yet. I would love to. And I, I cannot wait for that experience because I am excited to learn about humanity. And so I think that like I have this amazing job where I, people tell me their secrets. And that's an amazing thing.
1: Mm. now you just have to reveal yours
0: my (laughs) secret to yourself exactly (laughs) Um, well
1: you also i mean you've written about the fact that which is interesting because now you're so deep into understanding human dynamics and social dynamics but you've also written about the fact that as a kid beyond the fact that you were constantly in this hyper adaptive mode like trying to figure out okay how do i serve how do i be okay in these two profoundly different circumstances that envelop half of each week that um, when you were a kid also, you felt just very socially awkward yeah. in general.
0: I think that because I was so focused on home life, there was, home life took a lot out of me. Home life was not a refuge at all, ever. And so I was always on at home. So in a weird way, I got to school and I was like exhausted. Mm. And so I would get to school and I never really – I didn't know who I was. So I think I was also a very weird kid. And I've been told that by people in a very nice way, which is fine. I, I think that I like, I embrace the weird, right? I encourage all my readers to embrace the weird too. What happened was, I would be with people my age and feel like I did not belong, mm. and because I didn't know who I was, I never felt like I belonged. So I was constantly in groups, being like, "Is this my? Are these my friends? Is this me? Is that me? Do I tell jokes? Am I quiet? Am I extrovert or am I introvert?" Like I was literally, that was happening all the time.
1: Which isn't all that different, but it sounds like with you. Most of us just do that. We don't actually think about it. We don't process it. We just bounce around until we find our people. It sounds like with you, you're in your head, like literally asking yourself, is this my group? Is this not my group? Is this my which is Which is a very different experience.
0: Yes. <laughs> and was that a silly thing to say? That was a dumb thing to say. Why did I say that thing? Did people like that thing? It was like, that. as opposed to, I feel this. So I am saying this, whether it's liked or not. And so in fourth grade, it really, I mean, that was when it, middle school was really hitting. And... I think that my anxiety was through the roof. I had just gotten a new baby sister. And so I started getting hives every day mm. at school. And we went to every doctor for months and months and months. And they were like, we just, like, we think it might be allergies or we really think it's just, like, social anxiety. So I still get them. And they're sort of like these reminders of that my, because I don't sort of internally explore, I think that my body is, like.
1: It's going to come out one right now. Yeah.
0: And yeah. so it's been a really hard, good process that having hives isn't when you a lot of friends. So uh, in fourth grade, I dove into school. That was the only refuge I had, books, classes, school. So I like dove into that. And then that made it even worse in a certain sense because I became very oriented towards academics. And in college, I had a professor, very kind professor. We were arguing about a group, group project. <laughs> it was a group project. We had to write a 10-page paper. And I was like, I, I-, I don't want to work with a group. I'll write 20 pages if I can do it myself. And he was like, Vanessa, this is not about the writing. This is about the people. You have to learn to be able to communicate with people. And that I, like, to- I broke. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I can't do that. And he's like, look, you, you love chemistry. You know, you love actually chemistry I wasn't so great at. I liked science, but I wasn't so great at that class. You love, you know, studying languages. What if you studied people like you studied for a test? what if you started to do conversation flashcards? Yeah. What if you started to study personalities like you were learning new vocab terms? And that was the turning point for me when I started to study people like I study f- books. So I started turning soft skills into hard skills. And that was the first time I had the idea for my business.
1: Did, did it immediately click? Were you like, was that a light bulb moment? It was
0: a, it was a total light bulb moment. Yeah. And it felt, I felt relief. Yeah, bad. Oh my gosh, it was like, I, I actually looked at him and I was like, do you think that there are formulas for that? And he was like, I think that you could make some, you huh. know? He was like, I think that smile, right? When you meet someone, smile plus handshake plus pleasant conversation starter could equal new friend. That was the first time I had ever considered anything like that. Hmm. Um, and so I went through a couple years of experimenting and then I started posting my experiments on my blog and I realized I was not the only one.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not only are you not the only one, it seems like most of us are actually lost in that place. I mean, I know... My experience as a kid was I my sixth grade nickname was Freaky Fields. <laughs> um, I think all of us have that weird sort of like, you know, like thing. And then, you know, like in, in some way we grow out of it or we don't grow out of it, but we find that enough people who are like us that we're accepted for who we are. Yeah. My sense is that happens less. Actually, my sense is more what happens more often. I'm I'm so curious what your sense of this is. It's just my lens has been that we get a sense that, you know, there is this sort of like weird side. There's the, whatever it is that makes us different. And, um, in a quest to just fit in, Mm -hmm. we bury it. We build a facade around it that allows us to be socially okay. And we pretend that doesn't exist, which eventually comes out in all sorts of different ways. And it, it always, it makes it so that you will never be 100%, um, You'll never have, have 100% access to stillness, to joy, to love, to mm. all these things that make life great because it's always in relation to the facade that you're bringing to the world, not to the, the essence of who you really are.
0: I 100% agree. I think that, unfortunately, most people don't grow up and embrace their weird, although that is the entire mission of my business, Yeah, right, It's, it's to like let <laughs> people actually like embrace it. We can make Embrace Your Weird, our theme song. However, I think that most people, and after talking with so many people on Deep Levels, I have found that we really don't know. I mean, like, mm. when you first meet someone, you think you know them, right? You look at behavioral residue, which is like, um, you know, what we, how, we, how we drink our water or what we order. We think we know people. We do not know people. Mm. People tell me things, and I am constantly shocked, by what people tell me and i think that that's because most people are diving in and saying i can't show people that part even though if they just did a little bit of searching they'd find people who love that part mm. but take that takes bravery because it means that you're going to find people along the way who go ooh that's weird
1: yeah so how do you get okay letting who you really are at uh, like what are the ingredients because i know you're a formula person i am right so what has to happen environmentally or interpersonally For somebody to feel like, oh, I can actually really just let who i really i can let my freak flag fly you know it's it, it's gonna be okay or at least i'm not gonna crash and burn
0: yeah so the way that i think about it um is that we as humans are constantly offering bids like we're constantly and this is actually something i read about sort of a side principle with dr john gottman who's a yeah, marriage sure. and family love love. yes <laughs> so he had talked about this idea of bids within within couples a very small thing i was like that actually is what we're doing constantly. For example, um, you might go to a party and um, be like, oh, gosh, my heels are killing me. Small bit of vulnerability. Very mm. small, right? And you kind of drop it out there and you see, does, does another woman go, oh, me too, right? Or do people go, oh, I love high heels, so that's a very, very different response, right? So if someone accepts your vulnerability, they accept your bid, and they say, yes, me too, or they give you another one back, yeah, I wish I w- my, my spanks are so tight, right? That would be a bid back. That is like, oh, the ultimate human experience. It's so small. But when you have a bid that's accepted and given back, it feels good. But if you put out a bid and it's either ignored or it's stomped on, right? Oh, I love heels. right? And women I know are listening, and you've had your bid stomped on, <laughs> It's worse when it's passive aggressive. It is demoralizing. And so that's when we shut down. So what I would say is you have to think about what are your warm up bids. So hmm. I have a couple of really safe bids that when I'm meeting new people or I'm at a new event, um you know, even like going to a conference, I have a couple safe bids I will th- I'll just throw out that if they're if they're stomped on or stumbled upon, I don't take it too personally, but I find just glimpses of my people. Right, and that is a slow confidence builder, so I would think about what are a couple of things that you think, and you can kind of fill in the blank here is what would if people found out blank, they would think it was weird
1: hmm. okay,
0: so just as many things as you can think of everything from I use straws in my water bottle to um you know i I have taken meds for something I mean small to big, right mm-hmm. think about what bids could be safe could be little warm up bids because that is Like, it's like a muscle. Right. I think that, like, social acceptance is a muscle. Hmm. Do you have a bid?
1: Can we give each other some bids? I'm just thinking about that right now. I'm like, huh. Um,
0: I'll start. I can start while you think about it. Okay. Okay, so a really, um, a bid that I use in New York, So I'm from Portland, Oregon. Quiet, little, beautiful, green Portland, Oregon. Um, And when I come to New York, it's overwhelming for me. I have to, like, prep myself for weeks and so what i will do when i'm in new york with new people is i'll often say oh my goodness sometimes i find new york overwhelming that would be a bid because either you're going to get someone a new yorker who's like oh god i love the energy of the city okay got it right no worries yep cool or you're gonna get someone who's like yeah you know what when i first came here it was like that for me too but here's i find these little places that i love these cafes that sort of read and then you have this different conversation so that would be a bid that i would use
1: yeah Hmm. I'm just trying to think of mine right now.
0: So fill in the blank. Right. I love, I love this. Okay. So if, if someone found out blank, they would think it was weird.
1: Right. Um, someone found out, I'm so plain vanilla with this. (laughs) Oh, oh, there's something there. Oh, there's definitely, um, because I'm trying to think also like what I use, because I do that because I was the socially awkward kid and I, I was, and I write about this in my book, also. I was like, every party, I was in the kitchen. Uh huh. Yeah, like so that would be my my like thing, and maybe that's like the thing actually. Totally. Maybe that's my bit. You know, like hey, you know if you know, if you want to find me at a party, like come to the kitchen. That
0: that's the perfect. <laughs> Like bid, right? So, a it's a place where you know that you can like talk about food, right? You can see what other people are eating, but and it's also smaller. It's, it, exactly, and it's like you don't feel embarrassed sharing that. I, I hope, right? No, it's I'm like good. It's, it's It's like okay, like that's it. But that gives me something to then talk to you about. I I can I accept your bid because I totally get it. Um, so one of the things um, I do is I map out social events because I find social events and networking events and parties overwhelming, I actually draw, I did in the past, I drew a map of every event. Every event, And I actually have this, I think in chapter three, um, you can see it. When you first enter an event, there's the start zone. The start zone is like coats, hats, shoes, name tags. Okay, that's the start zone. You never want to stand in the start zone to meet people. Hmm. The end zone is typically waiting by the bathroom, going to people you know, um, sitting off on the sidelines of, like, the edge of a room. That's the end zone because you usually don't make any new connections at all. Mm-hmm. The the go zone, right, the best part is right around the food. That's actually a really, really good area to stand because it's really uh-huh. easy conversation starters. And the best place to stand in an event, any event, is right as people exit the bar. And I've known this because I've observed silently hundreds of events. That is the place where, as people are exiting the bar, they are desperate for someone to talk to uh, they have this face have you ever seen someone they get their drink and they exit the bar and they look they, they kind of look up and they're like "Who can? where do i go where do i, I, I go know. where do i go and people <laughs> will either beeline it for the bathroom or beeline it for the food beeline it for someone they know or that's the perfect spot where you can say hey i'm vanessa you don't even need a pickup line you don't even need a conversation or just hey how are you and they're like oh. mm. so you actually give relief when you stand right there right so food and right when you exit the bar.
1: So interesting. Um,
0: I call it the social map.
1: Yeah, no, I love that game plan. I love that, and and it's so interesting that that this stuff actually is deconstructible mm-hmm. into teachable skills because I think most people thought no, like you either have you're either a social butterfly, you either are just really good with people. Or you're not, you know, you're the weirdo. Yeah. And, you know, you. so you just have to find your other weirdos and you'll all be weirdos together. Rather than, and that may be totally fine for yeah. a lot of people because that happens to be me. Like we're growing actually a global community of people who yeah. see the world generally differently. I'm going a community is, of wonderful weirdos. Yeah, which is awesome, <laughs> you know. And at the same time, if you find that there is a certain value and developing this the like the learnable skills to be able to operate in an environment that would be constructive for you but doesn't come naturally it's great to know i mm-hmm. think that it's actually learnable because i think most people don't think it is because we yeah. never there's no course in college no. that says this is how you survive this type of experience
0: exactly and i think i truly believe that we can turn those soft fuzzy ideas and this is this kind of soft fuzzy ideas that i got in the beginning that didn't help me at all just smile that was one that I got, which doesn't help someone who's really anxious. Just be yourself, right? That was another big one. Be interested to be interesting. And that's, that's a big one. Like, I love Dale Carnegie, but that wasn't enough for me. Those are all really good starting points, but I'm like, how? Or be more authentic, right? Mm-hmm. Be, just be more authentic. Be genuine. People love that. What does that mean? So I have taken each of those things and been like, okay, what's the science say? What research can I do? Can I sit and map out a social event to figure out where the most genuine people stand, right? Um, And then how can I actually set up experiments? We do a ton of live experiments to figure out how they work in real life because with academic studies, as much as I love them, they're usually with a very low number of people, low variable, low N, right? Like they're all college freshmen.
1: And it takes forever.
0: (laughs) And and it takes forever. So I would much rather have 10,000 people who are our age working professionals and all over the world That's a much more interesting data set that I can base off of
1: academic research and then try to apply it in real life. Mm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. There are two things that keep coming into my mind as we're talking more and more and more and more, and, and I think I see them as two opposite ends of the spectrum, as potential applications of the type of work that you do. One, let's call the game, mm-hmm. right? The other, let's call um, kids on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's still the proper language, mm-hmm. and so if, if it's not, I'm, I apologize. But mm-hmm. so, and and on the one end, you you, the concern for me or the question is. Can you take all of the tools that you teach mm-hmm. to profoundly understand the subtler social dynamics between you, another person, you in a room, you in a group of people, and master those skills and then turn around and use them not for mutual benefit or not for your own benefit in a way that's genu- genuinely constructive and service-oriented, and not just for the purpose of, in some way, gaining yourself, but also lowering others around you taking advantage of other people mm-hmm. manipulating mm-hmm. um let's talk about that first
0: uh, the answer i think is yes i think that that is my biggest concern no. a lot of the time what i teach is powerful like it works um and that means that if you have evil intentions you can make it work powerfully for you in bad ways now that's why i'm that's why i had that crisis every time i read a headline because yeah. <laughs> i don't want to attract those kind of clickers I want to track the right kind of clickers. Um, I think that while you could use it for bad, it wouldn't be sustaining. So if you are doing something that is purely trickery, right, like you don't have good intentions behind it, but you know the, the words and the body language of goodness, right? So I'll teach good body language. I'll teach um, wonderful conversation starters or how to um, have a conversational game plan, right? I call it the spark line, right? So you could do that. And you could use that for evil. The problem is if it's not real, it's not going to last very long. Mm. So there, in an interaction, there's the first five minutes, there's the first five hours, and there's the first five days. And so the first five minutes, anyone can do anything in the first five minutes, right? You can get away with pretty much anything. Five hours, it's real hard to sustain trickery and evil intentions. After five hours, talk is one that, think about that. That could be four or five dates, right? That's, that's quite a bit. That's when it, usually your true self starts to leak through. And that's the thing is you cannot hide, I think, who you really are, not really. And so I think that you won't get past those first five dates, because you do a lot of mm, not great things in those first four dates, probably, if you wanted to. But hopefully, I'm not attracting those people.
1: Mm. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me, because they had at a conversation with Maria Konnikova last year, I guess it was, who... Spent years researching um, grifters, the long con, mm, mm-hmm. and fascinating. And she wrote this really fascinating book because she deconstructed the long con. Yeah. And she used all these people. What there were two things that kind of terrified me about about the conversation and what she was sharing. One was that um, these long cons very often went on for years, if not decades. Yes. And at the end of it, even when people knew that they were conned, they still wanted in. Yeah. And it, it was it was sustainable for such a long period of time. So that was one of the things that um, made me really anxious about. It. The second thing was that nearly every element as she laid it out of yeah. the long con was also a key element of marketing and entrepreneurship. yeah And so we had this conversation, which was similar, which is like in the end, it all comes down to intention. Yeah, you know the line between manipulation for nefarious causes to like profoundly devastating long cons and to marketing a new experience or program or product that will make a dramatic, dramatically better dent in somebody's universe is intention, and and that requires you to place a whole lot of faith in humanity.
0: Yes. So two things. Um, this, I love this topic is, one, I love prison memoirs for that reason. Mm. I read a ton of prison memoirs. Um, for the entrepreneurship, yeah. I also find the human behavior fascinating. Interestingly, uh, Charles Manson, when he was very young, he was one of the first receivers of the Dale Carnegie course in prison. Wow, <laughs> um, his roommate. Yeah, his roommate in prison said that he would come back every day after the Dale Carnegie training in prison. By the way, they they took it out of prisons, but he was one of the. He would come back every day and he would practice over and over and over again the one-liners and the lines and the principles he used from the Dale Carnegie course. So anyone can use human behavior principles for bad. Charles Manson certainly did. And second is. Um, There's a difference between, I think, well, you have to think about psychopaths and narcissists. Mm. So I don't, I actually don't write a lot about psychopaths and narcissists. And the reason is because um, I think it's a different kind of business, um, real serious business. So psychopaths often do not feel guilt. So when they're doing something bad and their intention is bad, they don't have this part of humanity that, keeps them in check guilt is where we get caught up so i do a lot of research on human lie detection we have a, um, a thing in our lab where we have people lie to us and then we code their lies for tells and it's where we get this really robust research on what liars do and one thing that is very very clear is that people with the intention of tricking us right we tell them try to lie to us right now okay so that's not evil they're just playing a game with us mm-hmm they still feel guilt. And that's where we catch them. That's when they have a tiny little shoulder shrug, or a little bit of a nose flare, right? Mm. And that's where we catch them. So psychopaths who don't have guilt, they're able to get through five hours, five years, five months, because that doesn't trip them up. And with narcissists, they have might have a bad intention, but they are so self-centered to think that they deserve what they're wanting to get, that that also makes them less guilty. Mm. So if you have a narcissist in your life, and I I'm sorry if you do. They're really, really hard to deal with. I've written a lot about them. When you have a narcissist in your life, they will do bad things, but they justify every bad thing Mm. because they think, well, it's for my benefit and I'm really important. And so that's okay. That's where you run into some real serious problems. That's when you can't, you can get past those five first days.
1: Yeah. So I guess those, those are thankfully the outliers. Thankfully. (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah, but it's got to be like just this little thing in the back of your mind when you're putting oh, stuff like this out there, because I know I spent years deconstructing revolution dynamics and how to apply it to business. and And similarly, there is actually like a pretty legit sort of step by step framework that you can leverage. and i I was just doing it for myself at first just because yeah. I was curious, can we actually build this into you know, like companies and communities that are there to do good and mm-hmm. um, which hopefully you know I'm in the business of creating? And somebody asked me to share it and I did at a keynote. And, oh. and then I, I, you know, people were like, wow, this is crazy, this is new. And I ended up sharing it at, at a number of bigger and bigger keynotes. And the second time I shared it, somebody from the audience said, "You know, like, how can you, like we see the power of this. What if this gets into the wrong hands? And I wasn't prepared to answer that when mm-hmm. the first time I was asked because I'd never thought about it because it was never my intention for it ah. to be public. It was my own research for my own stuff. But um, when I decided to continue to share it, I had to go there. And the the thing that made me okay was realizing that for whatever reason, the framework that I had put together was already clearly known by people out there who were doing bad in the world. Mm. And it was more about like, can I actually put this technology in the hands of people who are trying to create engines of belonging for good reasons so that people don't default to participating in the bad ones? They have another option. Um, But it's an interesting thing where there's no, it's not a clean conversation. Mm -mm.
0: And I definitely think about it. I think it keeps me kind of razor sharp, right? Like it makes me want to do better and do it faster Mm. and find better people, right? Like if I can give these tools to people who are using it for good, they'll recognize if someone's using it for bad.
1: Yeah, no, totally. Um, Let's talk about the other side of the spectrum before we come full circle, which is you take these same um, skill sets and ideas and you offer them up to kids or adults who, for some reason, are neurologically atypically wired where yeah. they can't naturally code mm-hmm. or understand what's happening socially in a room. Do you explore like th- that application?
0: Yeah. We have a, a lot of students in our online courses who are um, high-functioning autism or Asperger's. And they have said that it's the first science version of conversation or charisma or influence. And so because we break it down into formulas, I never expected this at all. Um, They have said to us that it's the greatest aspect of their, the social, like it's the best social tool they could have been given. Um, So I had no idea going into it that that would be helpful. Um, And now that I know that it is helpful, it pushes me even more to really codify, systematize, and turn things into specific bullets. If I can't turn into a specific bullet, I'm not doing it. I'm not publishing it.
1: Mm.
0: Because I don't want to confuse anyone. And if I think that it's fuzzy or uh, not applicable or just a good idea but not really useful, it's not allowed to be published.
1: Mm. So would you – Do you have an aspiration to take this specifically on that side of things and build a curriculum that is – and get that into all sorts of educational experiences, which are designed for kids who are moving through those struggles?
0: Yeah. So the goal is – so after the book comes out, we are going to be launching People School, which is basically the people skills you never learned in school, but condensed into something really simple, really fun – And that curriculum, I am hoping I can start a nonprofit arm and then deliver to schools, either um, through workbooks and um, videos or with actual training teachers to go and go teach to all their health classes or all their psychology classes or all their English classes. So we are building that curriculum of like the add-on to all the book smarts. Like you spent 18 years in school or 22 years in school learning book skills, book book smarts, why not spend three or four days learning people smarts? Mm. So that is the goal.
1: Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Looking back over all of this work, it's it's clear you'd love what you do. Yeah, It's clear that you're lit up by it. Yeah. I mean, like you're, worst as for anyone who started listening later, uh, we're just <laughs> past the first couple of minutes, we're standing here and yeah. you're like full of energy. You still spend a, a massive amount of time in your head. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like this work has in some way, allowed you to reconnect more to embodied emotion, to understanding yourself?
0: I think it's the only thing that's helped me connect, really. I mean, I think I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Um, I think that I learn by studying. I learn by trying, experimenting. And I think that if I had not have found this work, if I had not found this p- mission, if I don't get up and work in my lab, I am both personally and professionally devastated. It's the only thing that keeps me going, especially when I'm having a hard personal time. My work it is my only outlet for both things.
1: Hmm. It feels like a good place to come full circle. So the name of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer that phrase out to you to live a good life, what comes up?
0: Aha moments. So I live for aha moments. Um, they're those really small moments in time where something makes a lot of sense. And I think the reason I read so much, the reason I talk to so many people, the reason I'm doing experiments is I'm constantly looking for those for me or for others. Like my gr- the greatest part of my world is going to a speaking event and having someone in the audience go, and like, and I'm sorry, I know you can't see me, like, widen their eyebrows, like put up their finger and they're like, ah, right? And you see that when you're saying something that really hits someone, like, gets them I live for those for other people and for myself and I think that part of living a good life is learning things challenging yourself hearing and reading new things and I think that if you have those if you don't have those aha moments you live a very boring life it could be good okay but I think it's not challenging enough so I think that if you can have days where you're reading and talking to people and doing things where you're like light bulbs are going off even little ones like wow I didn't realize I love persimmons (laughs) right like that is a good life
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If the stories and ideas in any way moved you, I would so appreciate if you would take just a few extra seconds for two quick things. One, if it's touched you in some way, if there's some idea or moment in the story or in the conversation that you really feel like you would share with somebody else, that it would make a difference in somebody else's lives, take a moment and whatever app you're using – Just share this episode with somebody who you think it'll make a difference for. Email it if that's the easiest thing. Whatever is easiest for you. And then, of course, if you're compelled, subscribe so that you can stay a part of this continuing experience. My greatest hope with this podcast is not just to produce moments um, and share stories and ideas that impact one person listening, but to let it create a conversation, to let it serve as a catalyst for the elevation of all of us together collectively because that's how we rise when stories and ideas become conversations that lead to action that's when real change happens and i would love to invite you to participate on that level thank you so much as always for your intention for your attention for your heart and um i wish you only the best i'm jonathan fields signing off for good life project